This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to Just a Good Conversation. When we start our careers, we rarely think about that path and how far we can go up the ladder. Not knowing how far maybe a graphic artist or a photographer can go up that ladder can be a scary thing. With that, I sit down with the founder of Campsite Media House, Marcus Vadas, to talk about his path, chances he took, and the opportunities he made happen. And learning from those seasoned vets was so, turned out to be like the best thing that could have happened to me because when I did finally ultimately go out on my own, I started working with other agency producers and I could tell the ones that really knew their shit and the ones that just kind of like were plopped into that job. They didn't know, they, they couldn't tell you the different crew members and what they did. They couldn't figure out an AICP form. They were just there to kind of make sure that creative was being, make sure that their creatives are happy, make sure that their agency's happy, make sure you're not going over budget. But they, they didn't have a real true understanding of what was happening on set. I'm Matt Brown, host of Just a Good Conversation. Take a listen to our archives. My guests have ranged from small business owners, college coaches, and director of photography at Mississippi State, Austin Perryman. Every spring, our athletic department has what they call Super Bulldog Weekend. And they try to pack as many events for fans to go to uh, into one weekend as possible. So like in years past, they've had like the, the foot, our football team spring game will be that weekend. There'll be a big baseball series that weekend. Uh, usually uh, like a track and field meet or uh, tennis matches or like spring soccer or like a spring volleyball match. They'll try to fit whatever they can into that. And on that weekend this year, the capacity was 100%. And it was the first uh, series of games where there's 100% capacity at Duty Noble Field. And it was against Ole Miss of all people. And I've never heard a louder baseball stadium. Go to justagoodconversation.com for all our archives. Let's take a quick break from my sponsor before diving into my conversation with Marcus Vadas. Marcus, thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me. This is going to be good. Awesome. I'm stoked. We're going to talk about career paths and how we got to where you're at. Okay. <laughs> Are you still surprised you got to where you're at now? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't think I've gotten to where I want to be yet, so okay. I'm on the path there, All which right. is good. Tell me how that path began. Like, Where were you as a young man deciding, like, I think I want to be yeah. this uh, guy? Let's see. Well, hmm. were you an early like process guy, high school kind of new? No, in high school, I, I was just an average student in high school. You know, okay. I did fine. I was like a B average. And then... Uh, what was your interest? Anything? You know, I, I liked creative stuff. I drew ever since I was a little okay. kid. So I was always into drawing and stuff. And then in high school, I got into like debate. I played sports. Um, I was just really into hanging out with my friends, really. I, I didn't really have any big aspirations or I, I, I did see myself, you know, because uh, I was always kind of the class clown, I guess. That's such a cheesy title, but 
I was the one that was always making the kids laugh in school and everything. And, and when we did, I was, did, did a, uh, a speech class and then they had a speech show in front of the whole school in the theater and the auditorium. And they asked me to be the host and I loved it and I thought it was great. And, you know, so I thought, oh, wow, something like that would be cool. But again, I didn't have any like real aspirations of what I wanted to do. And then after high school, I just went and moved out to Newport Beach with some friends. I started parking cars and figuring out school like okay I, I went to orange coast college and we just kind of dorking around for a couple of years right and then i started noticing like some of my friends who i went to high school with where you know they're on their kind of last legs of college they're looking at what they want to do with their career and i was like i'm parking cars at the beach you know so i remember talking to one of my friends and she said oh you know we were talking about interests and everything and i was like yeah i really love cooking and I really like um, art. And so it was a it was a toss up between do I go to cooking school or do I go to art school? And so the the flip the coin and it was art school. And so this girl, <laughs> we, we missed the great chef, Marcus. We missed the great chef. <laughs> yeah, I still cook. But yeah, uh, I went to um, the, this girl that I, I knew at the time suggested uh, Laguna College of Art and Design, which back then was called the Art Institute of Southern California. Right. So I took a tour of the school, fell in love with it, immediately knew, like, this is where I want to go. Um, have I, you, before that, ever even knew about that place? Or even no, uh -uh. I had driven by it, and I had no idea yeah, what it was. Through the canyon, Through right? the canyon, I yeah. had no idea what it was. And then when it's I got there. It's a hidden there, gem. It is a hidden gem, and it's only grown bigger since then. Right. You know, I mean, they got a master's program, and, you know, they, they pump out some pretty talented students. So... Uh, <clears throat> I remember getting in required a letter of recommendation. You, you had to have, you know, grade point average, all of that stuff. I, I got in kind of by the skin of my teeth okay, and uh, did really, really well. So by the end of my freshman year, I was on the dean's list, the president's list, and the, the school was up for, uh, uh, for NASAD. There's NASAD, and then I forget. That's National Association of Accreditation or something like that. And then there's the, the state-run one. They were up for the state-run one where they had to be accredited within the state. And they asked me to speak on behalf of the freshman class. But I didn't have a one of the requirements to get into the school. And the dean was just like, eh, don't worry about it. You know, so I'm like, all right, cool. I'll speak on your behalf. Okay. I, lo I love this place. <laughs> and so anyway, uh, <clears throat> I, I, let's see. So, yeah, I did that. So I was studying graphic design. Okay, I was going to say, what was then yeah. the interest? Because you go to a place like that, I mean, you could be touching so much stuff. Yeah, yeah, you learn. It was really cool because I, everything was taught from an art perspective. So math, science, English, all of that stuff was taught from an artistic perspective. So mm -hmm. when you studied uh, science, you'd be doing biology with the body. And, you know, and it's important to know the body as an artist, especially if you're getting into fine art and you're doing portraiture, you know, whatever, knowing how to learn how, how to draw the body and all right. that stuff. So I did really well in that. Um, the sciences and maths, you know, we studied Fibonacci and uh, the golden ratio and all of that kind of stuff, which I found fascinating. And again, just did really well. You know, like I said, in high school, I was an okay student. I just wasn't very interested in what I was being taught. The focus yet wasn't there? No, the focus wasn't there. But I just, I, like I said, I just wasn't interested. The classes that I were in, was interested in, I, I did awesome at. Learning from an artistic perspective at the Art Institute taught me, like, I, I, all of a sudden I found everything interesting. It was just the way I was being taught that, you know, needed to change. And so I was really grateful for that. And I started to kind of 
take that into my life and, and apply that into my life when I'm learning new things, kind of looking at it from an artistic point of view, mm -hmm. looking at it from a more like a, I don't know how to explain it, like a, yeah, I, don't, I don't even know how to explain it, but just kind of looking at it from like a practical, how do I, how, how would I implement this in what I do now, you know? Right. So I took a lot of those, those things that I learned from a design standpoint, all the principles that I learned from a design standpoint and kind of applied them to other things in my life and saw that they could translate into that. So um, after I left art school, I got a job at an ad agency uh, well, actually, I, was, I, was fr I freelanced for a couple of years. But, it, but at school, are you thinking, okay, you're going to doing graphic artists. Or is that what you're thinking? Like, that's it? I'm in love with yes. this and this is... I'm going to be a graphic designer. Okay. My idea was I want, I want to freelance and be a graphic designer and just get my hands on all kinds. I want to design book covers. And, you know, back then they still had CDs. Right. You know, CD covers and posters and, you know, shit for events and whatever. Can I... Yes, you can curse all you want. All right. Especially, think about what the kids miss today. You said CDs. Think about album covers. Oh, yeah. The, how great album covers used to be. My kids, you know, so one of my kids, he's into records. And so he goes out and goes to thrift, sh thrift shops and, and, and buys records. And he's like, yeah, check this out. He opens it up and it right. folds out. And there's all this artwork. And then there's these pamphlets that come out. You get so much cool all this cool tactile things that you can look at and study and and get a sense get such a bigger sense of this music that you're listening to right and the you know it just puts it into a better context as opposed to just downloading an mp3 or listening to it on spotify right. where maybe you just get a picture of the artist you know and that's, right that's kind and of it the, really has nothing then to do with the album no like, it's just you know it's yeah, you're, you're getting the music, the experience of the music, which is great, but you're not getting any of that other shit that came, came along. Right. And you could sit there and they had like photos sometimes and complete oh, captions. Do you remember? I mean, I don't know. When I was a kid, man, I'd, I'd buy like Van Halen tapes, right? You'd buy oh. the tape and, and it, it would have the, the, the cover would fold out. You'd get all the lyrics. You'd get pictures of the band. Right. You know, you get these cool little things that you just can't get anywhere else. You know, we didn't have the internet back then. We didn't right. have YouTube. We didn't have any of that shit. So... That's what you got. Like that was it. That was your that was your whole thing of that band. And the more albums you bought or tapes you bought or whatever, you know, that built up your library of 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 understand learning learning about this band that you love so much. Right. And sometimes I bought an album because how interesting the cover okay, was. Okay, so I did that in art school and I I made it a point that I had to buy one CD solely based on the design of the cover. Whoa. And that's how I ran into Massive Attack. I saw this. It was called Mezzanine for Massive Attack. It was just this big beetle, stark picture of this big beetle, kind of black and white image. Really grabbed you, and it like. Then I started listening to the music. I'm like, oh my god, this band's fucking amazing. And you their, wouldn't their even have touched it. Just yeah. as or their music is just as amazing, if not more amazing than this artwork. And I would not have touched. I would have never known about them had I not seen that design. You know, so kudos to whoever designed that and i thought that was another thing too that's like wow the power of design you know it can really get you to look at something it can really get you to pay attention to something so i really enjoyed that aspect of it i didn't really consider myself to be a great designer when i started freelancing i started working for a lot of ad agencies and you know it's a different type of design right you know, the, the design i was trying to angle towards was more like 
learning how to develop logos, brand identification, mm -hmm. that kind of things, those things that were longer lasting. I wasn't doing that at advertising. I was doing kind of what I called like throwaway design, right? Right. You design an ad, it's going to live for a little bit in the campaign, and right. then that's it. It's going to be forgotten that about. That cycle, and, and it's gone. Exactly. And you just got to keep churning it out, keep churning it out. The one thing I will say about it that I, that I liked was it kept it fresh. I was constantly designing new things all the time, and working at an ad agency with a number of clients, they didn't just stick me on one client. They stuck me on a number of clients. So I got to do, you know, a bunch of different things. Um, but I noticed, like, the first two years, I loved it. I thought it was incredible. Well, it's like, fresh to you, right? Yeah, so yeah, it's I work. Just, I love my job. I love the people that I worked with. I loved our creative director. I loved the environment. I lived and worked in uh, Newport Beach. And it was just awesome, you know, to, to get out of school and to only have been like just a few short years earlier, living with a bunch of dudes on the beach in some rental, you know, and, uh, you know, with your parking cars with no real future. Now I'm in a career, in a fun, sexy career of advertising, and I'm getting to go to all these places and, and I, I get to be part of all these cool events and I get to be part of these cool campaigns, and all of that was super exciting to me. After about the two, three-year mark, I noticed myself starting to kind of plateau. I was, I, I was becoming better as a designer, and I, I was, uh, but I was looking in the future at, at the path of the designer, and like, okay, well, I could become a creative director and then have other designers and copywriters underneath me and helping guide, guide them to doing campaigns. Mm -hmm. I just, it just didn't really excite me a whole lot. And I started to, my, my excitement kind of started to wane. And right around that time, I started doing TV campaigns as an art director. They would send me out on the, on the shoot. And I fell in love with that. I fell in love with being on set and just. What responsibilities were you given as the art director for a TV campaign? So for a TV campaign, you know, I would work with the copywriter and okay. we would come up with the overall look. So first of all, you, you designed the campaign. Let's, so Ralph's Grocery Stores was one of our clients, right? Okay. Not super exciting, but they did a ton of work. So we would create whatever campaign it was uh, for that season. And then you have to do television against that campaign. So as an art director, I was in charge of the look and feel of the television spots. So all the TV spots had to have the same graphics. Everything, everything kind of had to fold into this look and feel of the campaign that we developed. So as an art director, you're there on set just kind of approving the way the casts look, hair and makeup, wardrobe, um, the locations of, of where you're shooting, all of that stuff. You're just there as a kind of as a little bit of an insurance to the agency that, that the overall look and feel is not being um, forgotten about. Right. You know what I mean? Misdirection. Like, all yeah, exactly. The director is worried about getting the action that he needs out of the, out of the talent. And they might not be thinking about the campaign itself. Mm -hmm. And you're there to kind of remind them and, and just kind of make sure everything stays on track. Right. So I really loved that aspect of it. But what I really loved more than just like, I didn't want to just stay in my lane as an art director. And I really started looking at the agency producer. So I saw what the agency producer did because the agency producer came in in the very beginning was like, okay, we're going to do it. We're going to do a spot. Uh, you know, the, they would work on the budget. They would work with the art team. They would work with the account services people. They would go work with the production company that actually goes out and executes the spot. 
after that's all done, you know, they work in casting. Right. Uh, they work, you know, helping to hire crew, getting locations. And they were out of the office all the time. I think that was another big thing that I really <laughs> liked was, and, and not because I didn't like being in the office, but I just, I love heading up to LA. Right. And, and it's sexy. Doing, yeah. Doing casting sessions and, you know, going on location scouts and checking that shit out. You know, that was super fun. So as luck would have. Oh, and then also post-production. Then they come back in and they right. work with the post team. They're with the whole process. Yes, they're with the whole process. And I just thought that that, to me, was the ultimate. Like, God damn, that sounds like such a fun job. Because you're responsible, in a way, for the whole thing, right? You're responsible for, like, creating this vehicle that is going to take the campaign down the street of, a, of, the, of the TV spots. That's kind of horrible analogy but you just got your hands on everything which I, I thought was awesome so as luck would have it the agency producer that we had at the time you know maybe wasn't the agency just wasn't vibing on really okay. well so uh they were let go and I convinced the agency to give me a shot so before that happened they were they were bringing in new producers and freelance kind freelance guys yeah. with the idea that they were going to hire them and uh, they just couldn't find somebody that, that worked well. Either they worked well with the clients but didn't work well with the agency, or they worked well with the agency but didn't work well with the clients. There was always some uh, disconnect okay. with them. So after about, I think it was about nine months, close to a year of searching for one, um, I had had my first child, and I took a month off. And during that time, I produced this kind of mini documentary um, for a family friend. So you know, Pat Boone. Okay. The yep. crooner, right? Mm -hmm. His grandson went to my high school, and um, and I grew up with him. He fell from a building when he was in his early 20s and sustained massive brain injury. So he was in a coma for a long time. Uh, the family's very well off. They they decided to create this foundation called Ryan's Reach. Okay. And they asked me to design the logo, which I was more than happy to do. And I started helping them out just designing collateral and... Uh, I came to them with this idea. I said, hey, you know, you should, while you're out there doing fundraisers, instead of just handing out pamphlets and stuff, you should show a video of what it takes to get Ryan in and out of bed every day. Like, what's a day in the life of someone with a massive brain injury look like? And that way people can see just how hard it is. And so they loved the idea and said, great, what do you need and when can you do it? And so by default, I became the producer. So you know, being in advertising, I knew directors, I knew some creative people that could help out. I got the budget together. Uh, I got a crew together. We went out over a couple of days and we filmed this piece that was about six, seven minutes long. And dude, it was like a, it was, I was really proud of it. It was a tearjerker. You know, sure. people, Jeez. people really responded to it. And when they showed it at their first event, I mean, they had, they got, uh, the, the fundraising that it, it, it helped out with mm -hmm. was immense. They could see that the needle was moving in the right direction, more so than any other event. Right. So yeah. this did a really good thing for that, and I was really happy. I took that to the agency, to the owners of the agency, and I showed it to them. And the owner of the agency, there was a husband and wife, the wife immediately wrote out a check for like $3,000 <laughs> to give to the foundation. She's crying. and So I, I just made my case saying, hey, listen, I produced that. I know you guys need a producer here. I know I'm not a producer by trait, but I know the clients. I know the agency. I know how the whole system works. I just need to learn how to physically produce. So give me a chance. And they said, okay. 
And so then I became the agency producer. And again, was totally reinvigorated. You know, it was scary at first. I when, bet. You know, because you're a, trying to prove yourself. You're totally trying to prove yourself. And you're dealing with like real money. Real money, yeah. Like as We're an not art talking director, like 1500 bucks. We're no, no, talking no. real no. six. Yeah, yeah. as real an art six. director, you're not even thinking about the money. You're just designing shit. You know, like, I don't care about it. You guys figure that out. Yeah, you're trying to keep people on track as the art director. Just don't sway away yeah, from You're the, just being creative yeah. and say, I want it to look like this. And it, and we, we think it looks like this. And the copywriter, you're working with your copywriting partner. And you're just coming up with ideas and then executing them. And, and that's kind of it. When you're on a on the TV side, on the producing side, now it's like, okay, you got a budget of $350,000. You're going to fly out to New York and you're going to go shoot four commercials for our client. And that was a, now I'm responsible for all of this money. Um, you know, you're, you're helping select directors, you're helping select crew. There's a lot riding on your shoulders, but I fed off of it, to be honest with you. I mean, it was good, scary, you know, but I remember the first time I went out, it was in the middle of the winter. I went out to flew out to New York, to Buffalo, New York, and filmed a uh, and filmed a series of, of commercials for one of our clients out there, and just loved it. Came back, got involved in the post production, and then I got to work with the other art directors and copywriters, making sure that everything that was being displayed in post was you know per what they have designed, and uh, working with the editor and setting up you know got getting to learn about pre production and I. Did, did you feel like they put training wheels on you or did they just cut you loose and say, go for it? No, they cut me loose. It, it, I didn't, I, I don't want to, this is not negative. I didn't get any training support from the agency. Okay. They were like, Hey, you say you can do this, but right. go out and do it. And you've done this documentary. So yeah, you're proving that, your, that helped a little bit. Right. But, but it's, it's getting you in the door. It's proving that you, you on your own, right. you did something. Right. Yeah, because so, I was involved in that thing from start to finish. Mm -hmm. Here's the story that needs to be told. Here's the, the arc, way right? it needs to be told. Sat in on post, had my notes on editing. And so I proved to myself, okay, yeah, you understand the way the storytelling aspect in this medium. You, right. You, you got a pretty good grasp on how that needs to go. Now you got to learn all the technical shit and, and you know, and putting working with crews and all right. that stuff. And Hiring and moving and money. Casting. And yeah, casting. And wardrobe and, and locations and fees and permits and, you know, all the legal shit. Right. I mean, there was a ton of that. I'm still learning that. That's changing by the day. That, well, that changes between city, county, state. Absolutely. All the time. Right, right. So uh, what, what was really beneficial for me was I had this really great line producer. So what a line producer is is the agency producer works with the agency – knows what needs to be done, and then we'll go hire either a production company, so you give them the boards, it needs to look like this, it's gonna air at this date, and here's where it's gonna air, and then you, you're you just kind of overseeing from a 50,000 foot view. Mm -hmm. But the way we did it, the agency liked to produce the commercials themselves, and we didn't really hire production companies, we were the production company. So I was in charge of hiring a line producer. The line producer would budget everything out, and he was, he was in charge of the line items on the budget. And I would go out and get a director. So we would go and like audition a bunch of directors and see which ones the creative director felt like. I would say, okay, hey, I, I, you know, I, I've got 15 reels. These are the five I think are best. And then I would show that to the team and then we would narrow them down. Either they would like them or they would say, hey, there's nothing here, bring us more. Um, typically they liked what I brought and it would be like, okay, we like these three. 
Let's, let's bring them in. Let's talk to them. Let's see who we like. Then we would narrow that down to the director. We'd get the director. So that was kind of cool being in, in that process. I'd have to go. And then the line producer would go out and hire the, the rest of the crew, all the keys. So the AD, the uh, you know, assistant director, mm-hmm. the cinematographer, the guy who's actually shooting it, you know, right. um, all the camera assists. You know, back then we had big crews. Back then, you know, we had real budgets. We're shooting on, fi- we were still shooting on film. Oh, man. So those, those crews are, you know. Yeah, the post-production cost 15 of it, people yeah. is a small crew. You right, know? it was. Isn't that crazy to think about 15 was a small crew? Yeah, which now I'm out, like, if I got four people, I'm like, oh, this is pretty busy. Yeah, boy, we're packed in here. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can send literally one guy out to go produce shit now. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, you know, that being said, we had, you know, this was involved with a lot of different locations, a lot, usually a lot of talent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember shooting in a house up in Malibu and, you know, all the crew and the trucks come in and you're laying shit down and you get the ram board that you're laying down. You got to protect the house, make sure you're not fucking anything right. up there. Um, you know, hair the and insurance makeup. of that house, you I got mean, all, all the that insurance stuff, yeah. to deal with. So the line producer is really running the show on all of those. He's the guy who's got his hands on all of that. And I right. had this guy, uh, Nick, um, his last name is escaping me. Um, he's this British dude and he had just been around forever and he was an older guy, but had worked on massive multi-million dollar productions all the way down to $2,000, you know, just, he just knew his shit and he took me under his wing and just taught me how to do budgets on an AICP form, which when you look at for the first time, you're like, what the fuck is this? You know, it's just page after page. Mind blowing. Yeah, it is. And it's just, it's just daunting, you know, but he taught me how to break it down and, and, you know, look at it. I learned from him how to handle adversity on, on set, you know, when you're dealing with some casts or agents, uh, it, you know, we were, we were out in Arizona in the high desert of Arizona where they shot tombstone. Mm-hmm. And, um, we had, it was, it was set in like 1890, right? When Ralph's grocery store first came around. Okay. So it had to look like this old Western town. So we had all of these cast members in costumes. So we, we shot an entire town. We had to build this entire dress, this entire town. So we had this guy who had, with horses. So he was the horse wrangler and he brought out carriages and horses. And then all of a sudden, you know, he, he's supposed to be done by one o'clock. We're supposed to wrap on the horses, but we're not done yet. And he's like, well, then I want X amount more dollars, you know, like we're already at the budget and, um, we're already at the limit. And I just saw how Nick dealt with that, you know, cause this guy could, ju- he had, he was in the driving you know, he, he had the control. Right. Like, he had need, the horses. He can walk. Horses. I'm out of here. <laughs> Either you pay me this or I'm fucking out of here. And the getting to see how Nick handled that. And we did pay him more. We didn't pay him the what amount he, he wanted. Yeah, right. But, you know, just watching him like work with that and keeping his cool and negotiating that. And the clients, none the wiser. You know, no one else on set knew. Um, we had a, a big gust of wind came and blew one of the um, reflectors down. And the reflector is like, you know, it's, it's the size of that whiteboard, right? right. It's, it's huge. It's huge. And it's really heavy. And it's on a massive C-stand. And it came down and just clipped one of the cast members on the side, you know, of the head and knocked mm-hmm. her out cold. And so, you know, you're like, holy shit. You right. know, total I, panic. Total panic. Like, we're going to get sued. And, all. She's and that's di- why yeah. you have insurance. Yeah. On. She turned out to be fine. We got to ambulance come and all that but just watching nick and how he dealt with all that stuff and it was just really beneficial and 
I always remember just learning so much from him. And the main thing was just keep cool, right. stay calm, you know, don't flip out. Because one thing, like I've learned as a producer, if they see the producer flip out, everybody's going to flip right. out. Right, everybody's going to go. If the producer is just staying calm and cool, like, hey, don't worry, there's a solution for this, it just puts everybody at ease, you know? Did Nick... Did Nick come to you and say, let me walk you through this? No. Or was it just something you kind of absorbed watching him do? No. Oh, well, yeah. So when I hired, so basically he had already, he was already hired to do a spot for us. This is right when I was coming on board. Okay. Now in the middle of the job, he gets this kid who is now, he's got a kind of answer to. Right. I'm the agency producer and he's looking at me like, who's this yeah. fucking guy? Like. <laughs> What do you, you know, like, what do you know that I don't know? Yeah. Like, He's got I, gum under his shoe older got, than you. Right, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, I got an answer to this kid. And I could obviously sense that. And I was just like, hey, man, this is my p new position. Here's where I'm from. Here's what I, I've worked with the agency for a number of years. And I just want to kind of learn from you. And I think he also knew, like, okay, cool. If he was good to me, like, I would keep hiring him. Mm -hmm. And I did. I hired him for years. Like, I was like, this is my go-to guy. Right. I have to build these crews, and I'm going to use Nick. The only time I didn't hire him is when he wasn't available and I had to work with someone else. But also, I was really lucky because I got to work with some really, really talented line producers. So there was another guy, John Ross, that I worked with for a number of years, and he was great. And he taught me a bunch of things, and I got to see his negotiating uh the, the ways he negotiated things and the way he worked with crew. And, you know, you just start to pick up all of these things from these really seasoned vets. And I was so lucky to have worked with those guys because when I went on my own and I, I ultimately left the agency, I, we hired a, another production company to go do a, um, uh, an infomercial, okay. which the, we had never done one. And I didn't think it was wise for us to learn on the client's time. So I said, let's just, literally hire another production company that will oversee that has done infomercials before that company turned around and offered me a job. So I, I left the agency and went to go work for them and only lasted there for a few months. Just realized I just wanted to be out on my own, Okay, but picking up those things and learning from those seasoned vets was so turned out to be like the best thing that could have happened to me because when I did finally ultimately go out on my own, I started working with other agency producers and I could tell the ones that really knew their shit and the ones that just kind of like were plopped into that job. They didn't know. They, they couldn't tell you the different crew members and what they did. They couldn't figure out an AICP form. They were just there to kind of make sure that creative was being, make sure that their creatives are happy, right. make sure that their agency's happy, make sure you're not going over budget but they they didn't have a real true understanding of what was happening on set. Yeah, that's always it's always good to a surround yourself with successful people. And there's nothing wrong with finding someone with a little bit of gray hair because they've been around long enough that they're going to know when things go terribly wrong how to handle it. Absolutely. And I still look at that, you know, like today now being the owner of campsite and I look for people to work with that are eager to learn, not necessarily from me, but just that are, you know, I, I hire smart, I try to hire smart people all the time. And my business partner and I are always like, if we need a position filled or we're about to take on a client where we need to go uh, satisfy some other needs other than just production, I only want to work with the smartest, like, let's just get the best people that the project can afford. Right. 
because, you know, I think a lot of people will, will just get a warm body in there uh, because the rate's low. Right. You know, so they can, they can uh, boost their margins a little. And to me, that can be the kiss of death. You know, unless you, real, unless you know what's going on, unless you got your handle on it, turning it over to someone else just because they're cheaper, Oof. you know, it's extremely risky. And you know, What, what traits are you looking for when you're looking to hire somebody? What is it? Oh, they, they need to be easy to get along with, okay. right? They need to be able to take criticism because if this job is anything, it's taking criticism. <laughs> yes. You know, you're going to take it from me, from the client. You're going to get it from everywhere. Right. So thick skinned immediately. Yeah. And, and it's not like it's not personal. No, it's not personal. And so I, I always look for people that like they take criticism as a chance to learn, not as a, uh, a ding against them or, you know, just just because you're, you know, the creative you laid out isn't liked by everybody. That's don't take that personally. It's like maybe you're missing the mark, or maybe they just got something else in their mind. Sometimes you can convince them differently, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's it's the person that can be flexible. I'm looking for a person that is flexible that comes to the table with good, strong ideas, but also isn't my way or the highway, mm-hmm. you know. Right. Um, so yeah, some mainly somebody that's easy. To, they got to be smart and they got to be easy to work with. Yeah, it's. It's a little surprising where some people, how they, they've never had criticism. They've never been criticized. They've never been critiqued. Like your art school, if you're, if you're sitting there, I, I had many professors that tore up 8 by 10 black and white prints mm-hmm. and were like, this is crap. That stuff kind of happens today. People just cringe, but it's needed. You need to get that thick skin. You work with a client. They've got an idea and you're maybe not relaying it perfectly to them or you're presenting something that they're kind of like, eh, I'm kind of iffy on that. I want it a little cooler. I don't like the kids. And whether their execution, like whether their execution is right or wrong and your, your way of executing might be the right answer. You got to figure out a way to either sell them on yours, right? right? Or meet them because like, you always want to deliver the best mm-hmm. possible. You got to figure out a way to work with that, you know, and. I always think there is a way, you know, otherwise, like if I, I, I've, I've not worked with other clients. I've, I've had clients before where it's like, no, I want it like this. Like, yeah, but that's not the right way to do it. You know, you're missing the point here or, or whatever it is. And if they're just like, so my way or the highway and then it fails and then they look at you and go, oh, it failed. Right. Yeah. Like, I don't work with those guys anymore. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's not worth it. Yeah. You can you can let clients go just as well as you can let people go, right. you know, who, who don't work with you well. Um, but you know, you also want the client to be a little flexible and real and you want a client. They're hiring you for a reason, right? You know, they're hiring you because you, this is what you do. You know how to do these things and you, kn- you should know how to do them well. And hopefully they're hiring you for that. So if you're just, if you're going to hire a production company, let them be a production company. Otherwise it's just, people executing a job, you know, and they're just, it's just paint by numbers. And right. you know, anybody can do that. When did you start to feel like you wanted to go out on your own, leave the agency and like, okay. It was around the time. So when I was at the agency, I was noticing mainly how budgets were spent and going, gosh, I could do this so much cheaper. You know, like I don't have all this crazy overhead. Like I could, where did it, was it waste? Did you see waste happening? Well, like, yeah, there is waste. Of course. There's always going to be waste when you have an agency. Back then, you know, the the budgets were astronomical compared to how they were now. To work with a million dollar budget was not out of the ordinary. Mm-hmm. You know, to work with 
anything above five hundred thousand dollars for a shoot was not. I remember with the L.A. Times, it was uh, December one. They had $150,000 left and said, hey, we want to do a spot for the Sunday Times. And I remember thinking, like, what the fuck am I going to do with $150,000? Are you crazy? I can't make a spot. I can't make a spot. I can't do that for one hundred fifty. dollars I'd kill for $150,000 right now. Right. You know? Isn't that funny to think that one fifty wasn't, like, no, something? No, it wasn't your- a big deal, like, back then. And we went through it. I mean, we spent, we spent all of it. But we created a really cool spot. And it was, it was through those moments, though, that I realized, wait a second. Like, you really don't need all this money. And it's also what the agency is charging for people, right? You know, mm-hmm. they're paying somebody the equivalent of, you know, let's say 250 bucks a day. But they're charging the client 1500 right. for that body. Right. right. So there's a lot of, you know... You can call it waste or you can just call it markup. Markup, right? right? There's a lot of markup in there. And I just knew, I always just felt like, gosh, I, I know I could do this a lot cheaper. And then it was like, well, I don't have the, you know, I don't have all the capabilities of an agency. Like, I, you can't just go out and say, hey, I can do it cheaper. Let me do it. You right. Know, no one's going to, you know, but I, I just felt, I just started feeling this urge to kind of either be out on my own or go work for another work for just a production company because the other thing too is when you work with an agency you're tied to their clients that's mm-hmm. it that's right. all you get to work on you their 20 is your 20 else. that's it exactly and in this case it was like maybe maybe they had 10 clients and three of them did tv you know wow. this is before social media right. was really coming out yeah when we did web it was it was literally taking our 30 second spot and just throwing it on the website you know right. what i mean it we you weren't you weren't designing productions for online and that went for a while it like did that. it went for years people like don't realize that like the internet was bastardized they just threw stuff on oh totally just take what we put on television and throw it on there and what's the difference what do you right. do? yeah this was way well before youtube and instagram <laughs> and facebook and reels and right. you know, all that well shit. it's gonna that, take them 20 minutes just to download it on their yeah, right, slow speed exactly. internet to watch it yeah, anyway right. who cares yeah. isn't that I mean, that's the if you look back and think it wasn't that long ago, yeah. right? It wasn't that long ago that an explosion of either cost cutting agencies, crews getting smaller, the way digital has changed stuff. It sounds like we're talking 50 years ago, but it was less than 15. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, dude, you think about the, the, the differences in the last decade, you know, like now, I mean, even just in the last, I don't know, Five years, you know, when we go out and shoot, we have to keep so much in mind that we're not just shooting for a horizontal format anymore. Now you've got this vertical format. You've got a one <laughs> right. by one. How do you tell the same story? Because you right. can't take your horizontally shot cinematic wide panoramic and cram it into a vertical. You've got to either shoot it differently or edit it differently. You know, but you have to take that into consideration. There's all these new things. Before you, you even get that camera started. And you have to, like, you got to hook the audience within the first couple of seconds because of the attention span nowadays. It's just, you don't have the luxury of someone sitting in front of a TV forced to watch your 30-second spot. Right. Like that Ralph's ad you were talking about. What's the first five seconds, six seconds opener of that? Yeah, right. And then what would it be today? It would have to be something completely... Completely different. You'd have to write new creative. 
Yeah. Right. So, and, but now you do. You write creative for TV. You you write creative for social. There are some agencies that only deal in social. They don't touch TV. You know, there's the traditional agencies which are kind of falling away by the wayside. There's the social agencies which are growing. You know, the, the production companies are changing. Production companies are now becoming those agencies themselves. You know, everything's kind of twisting and turning and molding into one. You know, the the days of the the AOR, the agency of record. There's that's it's a very interesting time for those big agencies. William Morris, those things. Yeah, because <laughs> clients are realizing, well, I don't really need you anymore. I don't really need all your fucking overhead anymore. I could actually hire this production company, and they've got just as many, if not better, ideas, and I'll pay them a fraction of the cost. And then I'll work with this social agency over here to help me out with my social platforms, and then I can work with these guys over here and still play half half what I'm paying you. Right. And I also know that when I'm paying an agency, they're hiring these other guys, mm -hmm. you know? So it's a really interesting period that we're in. And, you know, when I started Campsite in 2015, where it was when I started it and where it is today is, is very different. You know, we started out as just a production company offering, you know, so clients would come to us and say, hey, I've got a budget of, you know, $80,000 or $100,000, whatever it is. And, uh, I want you to create create something for me, right? And th sometimes they would have the boards. They would already know what they're wanting to create. And we would go out and we would produce it for them. And then we give it to them. They throw it on YouTube and wonder, how come it's not viral? How come it didn't <laughs> explode? What's going You know, because they're just throwing it on their platforms. Right. So we thought... We, we, we need to be involved more on the front end of things, right? So we wanted to be involved more on the strategy side of coming, the strategy behind coming up with the creative. Who is it that you're talking to? Where are they consuming their media? Where, when are they consuming their media? How are they consuming their media? And then let's build creative around that. Then you execute the creative and then you distribute it properly. Like here's where they're at. Here's where they're consuming things. And, and, and you, you, so we've kind of grown to where we're not just the production company handling just the content anymore. Was we, that the original idea when you guys first? It was the original idea. That was what we wanted to do. Yeah, that was the goal. That was my goal anyway. Right. Was uh, I, I wanted us to be. And was that looking towards the future and trends? Like, okay, this is where I see it. I was already happening. I just like, for me, I was like, well, I've only been a producer up until this point. I didn't work on the strategy side, really. I mean, as an art director, you could kind of argue that I did. But right. And all of the, all of those same principles I brought over into, into production. Um, but we didn't have the staff necessarily. Like, we didn't have, uh, you know, the staff that was just working on social platforms. You know, we were just really a group of producers and directors creating content. When COVID hit, that dried up, right? That stopped. It wasn't a, it didn't slow down. It came to a screeching halt. And I realized like, this is not a, a good business model because if a pandemic hits, you're fucked, right? Right. So I needed to offer other services and I, that serve those services of, of on the front side of creating, helping create strategy and, and helping uh, you know, strategize your creative and the backside of distribution, those things are, are still going because even if a pandemic hits and you're not doing production anymore, you have production, you've got things that you can put out there. So to be involved in helping getting those things out there, I, th I thought like, okay, I don't want to be caught in this position again. Well, I mean, talk about that. So that, that happens. 
Is it a quick pivot or are you kind of giving it like Mm-mm. 60 days, 90 days, no, six was, months? Uh, like how long did you walk that tightrope? When the when COVID hit, everything shut off. And for a couple of months there, we were just kind of like. So March, April, May? Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. We're like, what the fuck? Yeah. What do we fucking do? Yeah. So, you know, obviously we're reaching out to our clients. How's everything going? Yada, yada, yada. What's their responses? We were, you know, they're like, oh. Uh, like, like you, hands up in the air? I don't know. Of, yeah. I mean, yeah. some of these guys, you know, most of our clients were like agencies and stuff. So they, they were still working. Um, but now it's like, hey, we're not going on shoots, but we have posts. We can re-edit this. Can you re-edit that? So that's what we were doing. We were doing a lot of post jobs. Then I decided I wanted to take the company into a different direction than my partners. And so um, I got an investor. I bought my partners out. And then when things started to come back to normal, I hired a new team. Um, you know, I had, uh, an, again, my investor, and I was able to hire a new team and kind of put together the team that we were not just producers, but sales, right? Mm-hmm. Biz, I put together a biz dev team and then uh, put together a team that could handle things outside of production, handle that distribution and strategy that I was talking about. So we immediately started working for clients. We started getting retainer jobs, right? Okay. Which is way better than just the one-off of production. We still do production. That's still our core competency. But now, you know, we've got a number of retainers that we're we're luckily working with. And a lot of those, in a lot of that, you know, some of it is um, going out and finding brand partners for those people, for those clients. Um, Some of it is just distribution of of content that they have some of that content we're creating some of it they already have it or they're it's being created somewhere else but we're helping manage it for them we've got a client where we manage all of their they have got like about 50 productions that go on every year so we're managing all those productions and when they don't have a vendor that can physically do the production campsite will step in and physically do the production so but we're handling that whole workflow for them it's you know because a lot of these these uh these clients that we're working with we work with a mountain bike client we work with a client that does jet skis and um on-road and off-road um uh, oh shit what's the word i'm looking for you know like motorcycles side by sides you know all the fun shit they have athletes that they work with and they're creating channels. Okay. Right. right. So I want to go check out the side by side and I want to go see the coolest shit. You go to their channel. So we wouldn't produce all of the content for that channel. That would just be ridiculous, but that channel needs to be managed. The content needs to be managed. So you're working with athletes you're working with influencers. You're having them bring content to you. You're telling them, here's kind of what content we need. You're creating the calendar of content that happens. And then you're going out and getting that content. Some of it, you know, a lot of it's serialized episodes, mm-hmm. right? So episodic where we're actually going out and doing it ourselves, but we're working with other production companies that are going out and doing it. So it's really kind of taking that producer role and being, being kind of in charge of the whole thing which is really fun and really exciting. And, you know, we get to work with other production companies. We get to work with the athletes, the influencers. We get to work with the clients. We get to work with the ad agency of that client. You know, so it's, it's an awesome place to be. Now, uh, you know, that, that's what's really exciting for me, too, is not just we're not just doing production anymore. It's, again, like I said, it's still our core competency, but we get to be involved on the front end, the back end, the management end, the workflow end, right. helping them, you know, sometimes... 
we'll create the content. We'll we'll create the you know we'll we'll devise the creative for that content. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, the client already has that creative. They kind of know what they need, and then okay. we just go out and get it for them, right? So whether it's other production companies and athletes and stuff, uh, or we we do it on our own. So that's. Uh, so yeah, so I think that's the difference of where campsite is now, as opposed to where they were, where we were where in we were. 2015, right. 16, 17, yeah, before COVID. Are there clients you'll pick up that maybe you, like you say, like motorcycle or jet skis, but maybe there's a client you know nothing of, or you're not, you don't find that product or something interesting. Yeah. Do you still go for it, or do you still have to have a connection or a, you have to love what they do? Yeah. So ideally, it's like lifestyle. Is that we, we try to go after lifestyle clients, okay. right? So action sports is awesome, right? Right. Um, the mountain biking, right? Uh, our client, BRP, it's a Bombardier recreational mm -hmm. products. They do Can-Am on-road, Can-Am off-road, Sea-Doo, Ski-Doo, um, you know, all of that stuff. That's all fun. However, um, sometimes a, you'll get hit up by someone, right? So there's a, a new client that we're working with. They are in the automotive, and they do... Um, diagnostic machines, okay. diagnostic tools to help you figure out what's wrong with the car. These are for technicians to use. Right. Some of it's kind of DIY, but really high-end DIY, really DIYers that really know what the fuck they're doing. Right. Um, with a real garage. A guy who's got a garage. A, yeah, he's got tools. Right, yeah. yeah he's got, yeah. yeah. Right. He's not going to Home Depot to get his shit. Right, but, yeah. Know? He's not borrowing his brother-in-law's yeah, stuff right. from Harbor Freight. Yeah, he's got, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's got a lift. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's that. So that's not a market we're really familiar with. Now, having said that, we worked with Magnaflow, right? And we did some really cool work for Magnaflow and Mario Andretti and Chip Foose. It was less about the product, though. In fact, it had nothing to do with the product. It was really more about these ambassadors and how they relate to the brand and how the brand relates to the audience. But it wasn't so much about the product. But that's what turned this company on was they saw the level of work that we did they, we were right down the street, so there was a proximity deal. So mm. they came to us and said, hey, you know, we have some, some work that we'd like to do with you. And so I was like, all right, cool. I'm not going to turn that down. Yeah, you know, no. So we pitch creative, and, you know, they like it, and now we're going to go shoot it. I wouldn't go after that client, per se, had I seen them down the street or had I even known that, hey, this guy's, these guys are looking for a production company. I don't know if I would have been like, well, shit, we got to go introduce ourselves because I don't want to be everything to everyone. You know, I think like, hey, we're, we're a creative group, and but we're really good in this segment right okay. here. That doesn't mean we're, you know, we, I mean, shit, earlier. You'll in touch the year, outside, sure. For sure. I have friends that have agencies. And so uh, this, a woman that I know, she's had an agency for a number of years. You know, she said, hey, we got to do uh, some spots for an insurance company. You know, this is health insurance for older people. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, absolutely. Like, they're going to come up with the creative. They just need a strong production company that can put a cast together, get a location, and, and go out and physically do this production. You know, so right. it's like, of course we'll do that, you know, because that's what we do. And we, we can do it, and we can do it very well. It's not the type of work I go out and seek. I'm not going to go – when I was a freelance producer for years, I became known as the medical producer – 
simply because I did a job for Allergan for Botox. Okay. It went really well. And the agency, the medical agency field is kind of an, uh, an incestuous group and they all kind of talk to monkeys. I'm sure together. it's pretty small, but yeah. they're tight. Yeah, tight. And they're like, you know, and they all kind of go like, you know, they, they hop, they agency hop all the time. You know, the, the average span for someone at an agency is like two years. And then you move on to another agency and another agency. So it's like I said, it's really incestuous. So when I, after I did that, that thing for Botox, another agency out of San Diego was inquiring to their friend at Allergan, hey, do you know any age, uh, medical producer or do you know anybody who could help us out with these AIDS commercial that we're doing, like for this AIDS drug that we're doing? I mean, oh, yeah, we just worked with this guy. He's a total medical guy. Like, I'm not a medical <laughs> guy, but all right. If you, you say I am, sure. sure, I'll be. And so for nine years, I became this, like, medical producer i learned about regulatory i knew i knew the ins and outs of what they were dealing with which made me valuable to them because they knew that i knew what they were up against and i could make their jobs easier for them um, i remember i started working with this one client they handed me this really small green screen job it went really really well so they handed me another one and another one and before you know it, I mean, one year I was traveling all over the country shooting for every division within that. It was a massive wow. medical agency. And, you know, I'd be in there every week. I was in there meeting with a team, a new team, this team. Like people say, oh, do we have a meeting today? I'm like, no, no, no. I'm meeting with another team over here. Like, oh, right on. But I became <laughs> like this medical producer. And the, it was really fun and cool at the time. But it wasn't anything I was really interested in. You know, I'm... I, 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 you know, like this stuff isn't, you know, shooting up Botox and, and Juvederm right. and, and Latisse and, uh, you know, the AIDS drugs that I did and the hypertension medication and night times, you know, all of this crazy, you know, shit that I was doing. It, it didn't excite me. It was cool. I loved the people I was working with. I liked traveling, all of that. But then after a while, it's like you want to create something that, that you love, that you love. Right. You know, so. As luck would have it, I was hit up by um, a production company in Newport Beach. There were two owners. One of them was a little older guy, and he, he kind of wanted out. And he knew of me. I knew of him. We had never really met, but he's like, he, he invited me over and offered me a job to kind of start off as the executive producer of that run, kind of run that production company. Okay. Um, and then ultimately, in a year or two, buy him out. So I'm like, and they worked on vans. Virgin Mobile, Lucas Oil, like killer, cool, fun projects. Like it was like a dream come true. I was like, holy shit, I cannot believe that. Yeah, that's way better than Botox yeah, and AIDS research. Yeah, this just fell into my lap. This is incredible. It wasn't the best fit. <laughs> and that happens. And it Isn't happens. that funny? Yeah. Like yeah. the Botox wasn't like lighting your fire, but it, it right. was a work. Right. You get the dream job and it's kind of like, we yeah. don't really dance well together. Yeah, exactly. And that's what it was. It was just personal and differences within the company. But I, you know, found two employees that really, we started campsite. We, we peeled out of there, started campsite uh, about a year after I started. But that happens in creative. Like there's got to be almost like a zipper where you guys match up. Because if you don't, it's going to hinder the, the, the creative side. It's not going to work well. Yeah, you do need to, yeah. You, and I'm always amazed at those people that lasted so long agencies that are formed by like three or four partners and they've been around for 20 some odd years it's like damn how did you how did you pull that off because it's a marriage you know yeah You're, it's it's literally a marriage and that was the thing you know looking back on the way campsite started i had a 
had the chance, I'd do it a little differently. I met my two partners at this at this production company. Super cool guys. I mean, I have nothing negative to say about either of them. But we... I was waiting for the but. There's always... Yeah. Well, we knew each other for nine months and then decided to get married. Right? <laughs> right, yeah. And start a company together. That's about it's as a, close as Vegas as you can get. A three-way <laughs> equal split and hit the ground running. We had no clients. We couldn't take any of the clients, obviously. So right. we just started literally from ground zero and built up a company. And uh, I went out and, you know, I did That's biz a dev. a lot of trust. It is a lot of trust. And then, you know, as, as the company, you know, you, when it starts out, you don't have time to figure out, hey, are we working well together or not? It's just fucking go. Right. And get money in the door. Let's get revenue. Let's start Because we're already churning. bleeding immediately. We're already, at, we're already losing money. We didn't money. make any money for the first six months. We right. didn't pay each other. We, we couldn't pay ourselves. Right. You know, we were doing productions just enough to pay um, the vent, our, our, our crews that we were working with, rent, and the cost of business. Right. And then we'd have like a couple grand left over to split, split amongst the three of us. Right. You know, it was just ridiculous. But then, you know, slowly but surely. It builds. It builds right. and it builds. And you start getting word of mouth and you start working with people. And then these guys turn you on to these guys. And then, and then after some time goes by, you start taking a look at yourselves and realizing like, okay, we kind of have a slightly different idea of how the business should be run. Um, and if, you know, if you're not all sinking and it's an equal partnership, somebody's going to be left out. If mm -hmm. there's three of you, one of you is going to be left out, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's what happened. There was starting, to, this tension was starting to build. Right. Um, you know, I, I didn't think that the company should be run this way. They didn't think that the company should be run the way I wanted it to. And, and so there was this, and then when COVID hit, it was just a perfect opportunity to, to kind of stop and say, the company completely bled out. There was nothing left. So it was like, all right, good timing. Here we go. Do you guys want it, or you either pay me out, or I'm going to pay you out? And they were said, yeah, pay us out. So you know, it worked out. And if you look back at that now, wiser years yeah. later, yeah, nine months isn't enough. Do you need more of an understanding of like who they are, their I think work what I, ethic? Yeah, I think what I would have done differently, and they may have not taken me up on it. But what I would have done differently was I would have said, we're going to start, I'm starting a company. It's called Campsite. It's going to be a production company. And you, I want you guys to come work for me. I'll give you equity in it, but mm -hmm. it's not equal. At the end of the day, I, I someone, you have to have one, right. you have to have one decision maker. I'm 50%, you guys are 25. Right. Whatever, whatever it is. Whatever it is. Right, right. Whatever, whatever it, is. it is. But at the end of the day, there has to be one decision maker and that's me and that's it. Period. And, and because I'm kind of an entrepreneur at heart, like I would have been, I would have said, I'm the guy, you know, now they could have said, mm, fuck you. Right. You know, Go to hell. Yeah. We're not going to do that. Okay, fine. I'll find somebody. I'll find somebody. Right. Exactly. And so what I, I was actually just going to leave and go back to being freelance producer and, and just kind of figuring it out, like figuring out how to start a company. Um, but one of the guys was like, oh, dude, let's just do something together. You know, I was like, oh, well, okay. You know, and then it's like, well, you know, we need a director. And so then we pulled in the third guy and then, and then, and I said, Hey, let's just make it an equal split. That way there's no, well, what about this? What about, let's just feelings. Yeah. Right. But yeah. You, feelings will be hurt in business. 
It's yeah. just, I mean, it's just the way it's going to be. Human nature. Yeah. Yeah. Three ways hard, especially. It is hard. So I, I would have only done a three way like that again. Is if I had known these guys like my like blood. Right. You know, even then, you have to have. I think you just really need some. You can have an equal split, like financially and all of that stuff, but there has to be some lines. Like, okay, when it comes to these decisions, mm -hmm. I'm making them. At the end of the day, I get the say. Right. When it comes to these decisions, at the end of the day, you get the say. Right. And these, you, you know what I mean? Right. I think that's what we should have done. That would that would have probably have been. If you're the director, I'll let you pick the camera. Whatever well, it and is. That was already there. Like right. I, you know, I had made that decision. I said, hey, listen, when it comes to creative, even the idea, you know. You, it's you. You fall on the sword for creative. Um, but biz dev, when it comes to biz dev, that's on me. And I get to I get to take the company in this direction if I think it's the best way to go. And and that just didn't happen. You know, it, it was like, well, we all need to agree on that. And, right. And, you know, I think we all have kind of the same goal of, of doing a production, of having a production company. But how we got there was a little different. And, uh, it, you know, it just caused a lot of tension. And we got, you know, we had some. Pretty, that's natural. Some pretty brutal right. arguments. You know. <laughs> but that's business. Yeah. That's the way it works. Yeah. So when did you start to feel comfortable in the business as the producer, as getting to where you're at now? Like, was it a five-year, 10,000 hours you know, years with Nick. As a producer, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, like just in the business. Yeah, I would say uh, probably about two years into it. When I So when I left, when I left the ad agency and I went to go work for the production company that we mm -hmm. hired, um, they were right down the street here. I immediately felt, I, I started to feel comfortable in my own ability to produce. Okay. Um, I, when I got to that production company, I didn't feel like, oh, there's all these producers I can learn from. Be there wasn't. There were other producers there, but they were kind of in their own lane doing their own thing. Okay. So I was literally, I had uh, a guy who was in charge. He was the producer, kind of like the biz dev producer. So he'd go out there and get the clients. The joke was, you know, he knocks them up, I raise the kids, mm -hmm. right? So he would go out, get the clients, and then I would take it from there. Right. All right what do you got going on? Here's the shoot. We're going to, here's your budget. I'd go out and produce it. So then I realized from there, like, oh, I can do this on my own. Like, the, the only thing that these guys are providing me is, like, you know, the company card and access to clients. I've got access to clients. And so I made a deal with the owner of the company. I said, listen, you know, the four, I was there for just a few months, like mm -hmm. I think four or five months. Um, I said, you know, I, and I had brought on a couple of clients and I said, listen, if I leave, these clients will leave. But if you don't make me sign a non-compete, I'll take these clients, but I'll do the post here. So we both win. And he said, sure. Perfect. So I left. I took the clients. I became very busy and I took all the post there and everybody won. And then after some time, he came to me and said, hey, I, could you come back and consult with us as a, you know, for biz dev? Like, I, I need, I need, I want to get more, I want to get the, they did more than just production. They did in-flight entertainment. So they worked a lot with the airlines. That was their bread and butter. Okay. But they did, you know, they did a few million in revenue when it came to uh, production and they wanted to do more. So they said, hey, you know, can you come in and what would you do to help bolster that business? And so I said, well, you should do a show. This is before pod podcasts were around, but they weren't as big as they are today. Right, right. 
this is 2006. I said, do a show where you, uh, let's say you want to work with the creative director at Saatchi. You call him up and say, we're doing an online show. It's about 10 minutes long. You come in, we film you. We'll give you the show. You can blast it out on your social media. We'll blast it out on our social media and just give you some awareness and it costs you nothing. And they're like, fuck, of course. <laughs> Sounds great. Sounds awesome. I get to talk about myself and talk about all the shit I'm doing. Rad. So they came down and gave us an opportunity. It's like the non-sell sell, right? They gave us an opportunity to now engage with these people and start a relationship. There's no selling going on. But now they're walking into our place of business. They're seeing the studio. They're seeing it like, oh, wow, you guys are like a serious production company. Hey, you know what? We've got a production coming up. Maybe you guys should bid on it, you know? And so that's what happened. And then, but then <laughs> the show actually got kind of caught hold and... Cox Channel 3 picked it up. So that's where on... That's where on air came on from. On air comes right. And then after six months of being Cox Channel 3, PBS SoCal called and said, hey, we'd like to air it. You know, so all of a sudden it became like a show show. Was, was that surprising? It was. It was totally surprising. And it was awesome. But And I was getting paid to do it by the company. They were paying me to do this. But I also had my work on the side. I was still producing. <laughs> yeah, you're still working. And I was... I was so fucking busy and it's a lot to put on a show and I had to do one a week. So I would film four episodes in a day and then spend the rest of almost a week and a half sitting with the editors, editing a 24 minute program that had to be on PBS. So it just took up a lot of my time. And I noticed like my business things were falling through the cracks and I couldn't afford that to happen. So you know, from a financial point of view, I'm making way more money on my business than I was on the show. So I let the show go. And I'm, bu I'm still bummed about that. That was a four-year run, right? Uh, yeah, it was three. I three? Think. Yeah, about three years. So it was awesome. I loved it, you know. But I, And I wish I kind of would have kept on it, you know. But now, you know, taking that same approach, we're kicking around doing a podcast here. Same, same idea, right. you know, talking to the people that we want to talk to and, you know, a podcast is so much simpler. Oh yeah. It's, and we're talking, how many years did you, was that, did you start that show? What that year was, was that? 2006. So again, it goes back to the technology. 16 years later, you know how much easier that would be today? Oh, dude, we had, I mean, I, it was a three camera setup. It took up a whole studio. We had furniture. It was a whole deal. I mean, it was, you know, it was like an ordeal right. to do. And were uh, you trying to do like a, like you're not, you know, you're not Dick Cavett, but is it like a 60 minutes kind of style with the, with it's the me sitting down? It's yeah. I'm sitting in one chair. My guest is sitting in another. There's a coffee table between us. We got a monitor in the back with their logo up got three different cameras so that we could just do, right. You know, just two tights and, a, and, a, and two shot. Yeah, exactly. That way we had, we had stuff to cut away to. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then I would ask them to supply us with assets like hey when you you, you were talking about you know we we, we spoke to uh, the guy who created von zipper eyewear okay yeah when you talked about moving into your first building do you have pictures of that right do you have pictures of the product you know so we'll we drop it in drop that in yeah. you know and it takes a lot of a lot of time to do it well and because i was producing it i couldn't lean on the guy on the editor and everybody to do that for me right i had to sit there and work with the editor hand in hand you know I had to book the guests. <laughs> I had to manage all of that shit. I didn't have an assistant. I didn't have anything. Again, they were paying me to do it, and it was stoked. I, I liked it. I really but it's hours. Oh, it my is. God. It's a lot of work, man. Then you get a guest that drops out. 
at the last minute. Yeah, right. So you have to have a backup guest, hopefully, and hopefully they can still swing it. Um, you know, so there was all of that. Where a podcast, I mean, shit, dude. I, I mean, can, yeah, we're I just sitting carry, here. Yeah. I can carry all yeah. of the equipment in my backpack. Yeah. And I can go to you, or we can do it remotely, mm-hmm. right? You can be in one area, I'll be in another. And it's just so much simpler. And, you know, we can really target our market. You know, if you've got smart people that know how to know how to distribute it properly, which we do, we can really target our market. Um, we're we're kind of doing it in conjunction with the American Ad Federation, so you know there's already some like reason to listen to it. It's not just you know it's not just me going. Check me out. Yeah, here we go. Another right. story. Right. Yeah. So. So yeah. So uh, yeah. Technology is. Yeah, 16 years later, it would be so much easier to yeah. do that show. Yeah, totally. All robotic. They'd be following your eyes now <laughs> with the cameras. Right. And you would be sitting there and you could be literally one guy could be editing it as it goes. Yeah. I do live editing. Oh, my God. And you could have that thing. You, you could be doing it live. Yeah. Like three cameras set up on Facebook and just bang it yeah, out. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's amazing. Again, 16 years doesn't sound that long. But the way things have evolved... It's a million years. Yeah. Dog years. Well, shit, it's eight years. No, right? No, wait, no. Oh, oh no, six? I'm, I'm sorry. No, sorry. You're right. Yeah. Oh, six. Yeah. Yeah. Years, yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Jesus and Christ. It's oh a long time. Old. <laughs> what, okay. So at, at, through your career path, what we'll, we'll start with the negatives. What mistakes did you make that you wish you could have like had a rewind and been like, oh, that would have saved me six months of my life of dealing with those headaches in my career starting from the most recent i mean the you know from the bigger ones i mean i've made mistakes in the last few years here but the bigger ones i would say like starting campsite i would have um right that relationship better organized okay the the organization of the relationships and how that was all done i would have changed that before that i i think um let me see here did you like your path did you feel like as, you know, from college to those couple of years and the th- way things were moving, you felt like you had a good couple of years, you were evolving? Even when things started to get a little slow, then you became a producer, you took that risk. Was that good for you? Or did you feel like you got stale a little too long, stayed in a place a little too long? I think with my path, what was interesting to me is my path unfolded in front of me. I didn't start going, okay, I'm, I'm here and I want to be there, and I'm going to get there by going here first, then I'm going to take a turn and go there, then I'm going to take a left and go here. That's not how And it I got to do that in 24 months. Exactly. Right. It, I didn't have that. It's It started to develop that way down the line. So, for example, started as an art director. Okay, that's all great. And then I was just like, oh, I'm getting bored. And then it was like, oh, producer came to me. I didn't think I want to be a producer all of a sudden I was confronted with it, right? It, it like, it presented itself to me. And I was like, oh shit, that would be cool. And then when I got into production, all the goal was, is to learn production. I didn't have, I wasn't thinking about the future. I'm going to own a production company. And I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I didn't think any of that. I just wanted to learn production and get paid for it. And that's what I did. When the opportunity to leave the agency and go work with that, that was again, presented to me by way of production, right? I have... We were looking for a production company to do the infomercial. I found those guys, and then they offered me a job. 
Right. And so I, I didn't seek that out. That wasn't part of the plan. That's just what happened. When I got a job there, I planned to stay there, like, for at least a few years anyway. I didn't think I, in four months I was going to bail. But in four months, I just had this itch to, like, I got to get out on my own. So you're a hugger. When opportunity comes in front of you, you hug it. You take it on. The producer will... It has will, to feel right, though. Right. Like, I mean, I've had so many opportunities come in front of me and I like, yeah, no, thanks. You know, but <laughs> standoffish, <laughs> right. But there are some where you just, you just feel this thing inside and you can see yourself like you can see yourself you can there that. as clear as day. So when I saw myself, when I saw myself at that production company, it was as clear as day. And when I oh. got there, it's exactly how I imagined. And when I went freelance, same thing, I wanted it more than anything. And when I got there, uh, it was awesome and I, it, it, it's everything that I thought and more that show again presented itself to me now I wish I would have stuck with it I wish I would have kept that show going I wish I would have um, put a little bit more energy into that and put more uh, but you know I had a family and my production company or my freelance production I was crushing it you know so I was like alright is this thing or this thing this thing and, and I didn't view myself as a TV host. That wasn't in my, my goal of the future. I want right. to be, you know, uh, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to be the next, uh, yeah, Dick Cavett or, right. know, yeah. uh, that wasn't it. So, and I saw production more, um, you know, and then when the, when the, when the role came to do, to, to go work for that company, that was something to me. It was like, oh, wow. As, as you're a freelance producer, you think, I would love to own a production company. Mm -hmm. how, do I, how do I fucking do that? How do we get there? Then right. a fucking production company comes to you and says, hey, I want you in here, and then you buy us. Like, you, be, you are now going to be the, the owner of this production company. We already built it. It's already built. Right. And now you can, I'm like, wow, that's an option. Like, <laughs> fuck yeah. yeah and I could see, I was so excited when I got there. I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. But I quickly realized it wasn't the place for me just because the fit wasn't right. The dynamics of the relationships of the higher ups didn't quite jive. I loved everyone that worked there and we all got along and still talk today. But See, that's good sense that you saw that it wasn't for you. You didn't stick it out and, and lose two or three or five years. Right, which a lot of people do. I, I know so many people that are working at a place and they fucking hate it. And this is like, well, this is what I do. And this is, this is my paycheck. It's like, I've always been the guy's like, if you don't love it, get out. Like, right. Don't be a miserable. Don't be miserable because it doesn't benefit anybody. It doesn't benefit the, the party you're with and it doesn't benefit you at all. Right. You and know? you'll bring it home and you'll be miserable. And oh, just, totally. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I worked at the agency, it wasn't that I was miserable at the agency. I just felt like I kind of hit my ceiling here. There's nowhere to go from here. And I was bringing that home, not even realizing it, you know. When I worked at the production company, I quickly realized you're going to hit the ceiling here. Very shortly, you're going to hit the ceiling here. Right. And then what? You're just going to come to work every day doing this thing? The only thing, too, is I wanted my freedom. Not because I just wanted to hang out all day, but I wanted my freedom. I didn't, re I didn't understand if I don't have a production going on. So the way that that was set up for me was I had one guy who was going out he was the biz dev guy, right? He was bringing, getting the clients in the door. Okay. Once we got the client in the door, I took over. If there was no client in the door, why am I coming to work? Why do I have to show up and sit in my seat and email or do, I don't know what, like, right. 
what you guys hired me to produce when we have a production. So when we don't have a production, why am I here? And you're making money. So like we get a production, I do it. I'd come in under, I mean, when I left, I said, here's what you paid me for the months I was here. Mm -hmm. Here's the work that I did. Here's the money I made the company. And here's the money just from the money I saved on budgets coming in under you win. Right. Right. So I didn't need to be here at my desk, though. I, that part just ate at me. Right. Yeah, and that's so, always drives you nuts. Yeah, and I think it drives a lot of people nuts. So I, I, I wanted my freedom. I wanted, I wanted to be in control of my time. So that's why producing, uh, being a freelance producer, appealed to me so much. And that's why owning my own company appealed to me so much, is because I want to be the judge. I want to be the keeper of my time. I don't want someone else to do that. Right. And I... I offer that same thing to the people that work with me, you know, like the people who work for campsite, your time is your time. You've got, you've got things to do when you're here. You've got certain goals that I expect you to meet. Um, but if you're meeting those goals, great. Sure. You, you, you and it's Tuesday afternoon and you want to go for a swim or go work out, fucking do it. Go. I, I think yeah. the wonderful thing about COVID, the best thing about COVID is forced everybody to stay home. And then companies started to realize, yeah, we don't need all this overhead. We don't need you to come in. It doesn't do, it doesn't make anything. Some, in some cases it's more productive. Right. In some cases it isn't. And in some industries, like my buddies who are in the um, uh, mortgage industry, it's very easy for the higher ups to go, okay, the people that are working on their own at home, here's the ones that are, are crushing it. Mm -hmm. We're going to keep them. Here's the ones that aren't crushing it because nobody's watching them. <laughs> We're going to let them go. Right. You know, and it's like, we don't need you to come in here. So then the. Because you're doing the same thing at, doing, at work. You weren't crushing it when you were in the office nine to five. And now it's like you have all that overhead of, of, insu uh, of a, you have to get a building. You have the insurance of the building. You got a. Electrical. Water, all, electric. Yeah, yeah. All the utilities. Uh, furniture food, rental. Furniture. All of that shit. You know, right. like, I don't have to, you don't have to do any of that. So I think it was a real blessing. I think that was one of the blessings in the workplace that COVID provided was that it's okay to work from home. You know, I yeah. mean, we have an office here, but we choose when to come in. We only really come in when we have meetings like, hey, we're going to have in-person meetings or if we just need to meet internally to sit and discuss things, mm -hmm. then we come. But most of uh, the, the, the big chunk of our time is done remote. Right. I do it at home. These guys do it at home. When we're on productions, we're on the production, you know, so there, there's no need to. So, so I, it, it just provides it wouldn't a better get workplace. You, yeah. you wouldn't get any better or run a better company no, nine to five uh, Monday through Friday here. No, I, I wouldn't want to be here. No. You know, like I, I wouldn't want to be here nine to five. I don't expect you to want to be here nine <laughs> exactly. to five. You know, if you want to be here nine to five, there's your There's office. the door. Sit there. Have it. Have at it, man. <laughs> and I get it. Some people want that. They want to separate church right. and state. I totally get that. For me, it's the same thing. Sometimes it's like, I'd rather come to the office and do work without the distraction of being at home mm -hmm. and all the things that that provides, mm -hmm. you know? So I, yeah, I, you know, but on those days I come in. Right. Who's right now, if you could wave a magic wand and get that client, who would it be? Hmm. Who would you want to work with? Um, New or old, like somebody who's been around for a couple of years or somebody that's been around for 40. Question. I don't know. Let's see. I mean, I've got a list of clients that I want to reach out to, of course. Right. 
um, but it's like a bunch of clients. Right. I don't think I have a. I don't think I have one client. You got a white whale. You got that. You know, if not, it was no, not really. I just like I look at the lifestyle. You know, there's a lot of clothing brands I'd like to work with. There's a lot like of, who like um, Duluth Vessel. Like who's yeah, like Duluth is kind of cool. Viore I think is a cool kay. brand. Visla like a lot of these emerging brands that kind of emerged online. They mm -hmm. emerged through social media. Right. Those are the Rourke. You know, these are brands that, uh, man, they've just got a really cool vibe about them. And, uh, you know, some of the older brands like Olokai that's been around for a while. Um, uh, you know, Hurley, obviously. You right. Know, you know, there are some really cool brands out there that I, I like their aesthetic. I like their kind of point of view. And, you know, I'd love to be part of it. And I'd love to have a hand in it. And, uh, you know, but I don't think there's one. Yeah, there isn't there isn't the white whale that uh, not that I can think of anyway, you know, I'd love to work with a brand like, uh, you know, like a motorcycle brand like Kawasaki or something. Or, right. Or, uh, you know, um, was it Fox racing, something like that? Aren't yeah, they? Fox racing is cool. Yeah. You know, I did. I did work with Lucas oil a bunch of years ago. That was cool. Mm -hmm. Just, yeah. So I think we're kind of doing it, you know, right now. I just want to do more of it. Right. Yeah. Cause there's always like, Sometimes you'll look at somebody, some company, and you'll go, boy, if we had them, I think I can help them by 10%, which uh -huh. is a lot. Yeah, yeah. Can be, some people think only 10%. Well, uh -huh. if they're making $500 million a year, 10%, they'll take it. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's a chunk of change. Yeah. Or if they're only making a million five, yeah. 10%'s even yeah. bigger. Right, right. So, yeah, it's always uh, looking at those companies and, and seeing who succeeded and was able to make it during COVID. And who went away? Like, I used to love Best Made Company oh, yeah. up in L.A. Didn't make it. Really? Duluth bottom. They didn't make it during the... They didn't make it during the riots. Wait, they didn't... What, what do you They're mean? They're still didn't? around. Yeah. But the whole company got bought out by Duluth. That's funny because I just bought a bandana from Best Made. Yeah. And it was through the Duluth website. Yep. So, during those riots in May yeah. of 2020... What did that have to do with... Well, they got completely ransacked. Oh, shit. I yeah. I know that. That whole street, they got ransacked. Oh, okay. Nobody's there. They get, the company's not, you know, they were one of those ones where they were right on the edge. They got to be selling every day. They were shut down till November. They couldn't get the, they couldn't afford to put the company back together. It got like torched. Oh, wow. I had no idea. Duluth comes in, <laughs> gobbles them Picks up. Picks up the brand. Picks up the brand. Because it's a good brand. It was a great brand. Yeah. I used to love to go there. Take my boys, throw the axes. Oh, I didn't go. Stuff. I didn't know they had a... A uh, great store now. Oh, really? A I didn't great know they had a store. store. I bought some stuff online. They were a little pricey. Yes. I mean, $60 for a hatchet. Right. When you can go to but REI and you buy could try the hatchet out in the store. They actually yeah. had a gat, like a, an alley. You could throw, throw it them. down yeah. and all this stuff. So my I take my... My stepdad bought one. He passed away, so I have his... <laughs> I'd take my boys and I'd be like, well, if you're buying a hatchet, you yeah. might as well throw it and see how it works. I liked their aesthetic. I really liked their I style. Did. But, you know, they they sold like a toolbox, like an old school yeah. red metal toolbox. Right. It was like a hundred and some odd dollars. I'm like, I can go to Harbor Freight <laughs> and buy that same fucking box for 15 bucks. Right. You know, why am I? But yeah, that was their it's thing. It's just to get that little X. That little X. Yeah. yeah so it's like that broke my but heart. That, that shows you the power of branding. Yes. Cast iron. Cast iron, you can go to Ace Hardware. You can buy a cast iron skillet, a 10-inch cast iron skillet for $20. Or you can go to the La Crusade website, 
and paid two hundred and fifty dollars, mm-hmm. and it's the same fucking thing. It's it's cast iron, period. Yeah, it might be made a little differently. They might put some ceramic coating on it or some bullshit. Hopefully not, but it's just all the power. It's the power of the brand, right? And what that do, and uh, and I swear, some people just swear by it, right? They will pay it's that better. extra. It's better. No, it's and it, sometimes that's true. Sometimes it is better made. But, you know, I think... In, in is, it case, is it $190 better? Is it $190 better? You know, best made. Or, ma- yeah, best made. Yeah, best you know, made. Same yeah. thing. Hatchet, is that hatchet it's, better? It's a wooden handle. <laughs> with, And they're not manufacturing it. No. It's being manufactured. That's what they're just branding it best made. <laughs> right. They just slap some paint on it. Yeah. So it's like, it's so crazy to me, you know. Now, clothing brands are a little differently because stitching's differently, materials are different. You can see quality of work, you know. Mm-hmm. So going to, um, you know, Walmart and buying a t-shirt as opposed to getting one from Viore or Nike. Or, right. You can t- see the quality difference. Right. You can, now, now, is it worth whatever to you? I don't know. You know, do you do you love branding? Do you love doing that with oh, yeah. companies? As and- a designer, you know, to me it was all in the brand. Like to me, like the logo was the the start of it all for me. When when we came up with campsite, I designed our logo and I bled over it. You know, like we I had my partners come in, we sat on a whiteboard and we just said, "What is interesting to you? Just name out shit that you find interesting." And we just started listing it out. Boom, 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 boom. Okay, out of all of these things, here are the things that I find interesting, that the same things that you find interesting and the same things he finds interesting. What's the thread? What's the common thread to all of that? Oh, okay, well it's this, 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 this and this. Now let's boil that down. What's the common And that's how we created the name because after we boiled all of these things down, we all realized, A, of course, we like storytelling. B, we all liked the outdoors. Um, C, we liked the idea of spending time together outdoors. And that was like, oh, a campsite. That's where you have... Now, originally, I, because I like to even... Re- I, li- um, I love reduction. I called it campfire. Like, okay, let's get it down to like the center but there was another production company in LA, a music production company called Campfire Music or something like that. So it was a little too close. So we decided on campsite. But then even the mark of campsite, mm-hmm. you know, it's these kind of arrows that are all pointing inward from north, south, east, and west. And that's that tells the story of stories coming from every direction, all pointing towards, you know, this one central place. None of nothing. None of those pieces touch each other because I wanted to show fluidity coming in and out. You know, so it's all in the branding, right? So to me, like that brand, that mark tells a story. It tells a story of who we are, of who the company is, what our ethics are, what our values are. You know, I tried to pour all of that into the logo. And when I see brands really take that into consideration, you know, they whether it's their logo or the way that they advertise, where they advertise, how they advertise, when they advertise, all of that, when they do it right, you can, it just feels good and it's like you want to be part of it. So that to me is what I find when you ask me what are the brands that I want to, it's brands like that, brands that take everything into consideration. Nothing drives me crazier than when I, when I've met people in the past like, oh, how did you arrive at that name? Oh, it was the street we worked on. 
you know, or which is fine. Look, right. I'm, not, I'm not right. You know, like, but that's fine. not much of an effort. Or while we were thinking of the name, uh, okay, I hear. <laughs> here's this one. It's a big company. I'm not going to say the name. It's a big company. And I said, how did you arrive at the name? Well, I had to apply for a business um, license. I was over the phone with the guy, and he said, what's the name of your company? What do you want it to be? And I said, such and such, but he heard such and such. So that's the name. That's how it came. So, so, so I, that's how IBM got their name? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean, but... I, I, right, I, yeah. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, right. are you serious? Like, <laughs> you're doing a hundred million in revenue, and this is how you came up with your name. Now, that's me, and that's my thing. Like, right, but some people are like, who fuck, who cares? You know. But I, to me, like, I just love when real thought has been put into it, like from your mark. Because if you're putting that much thought and care into your mark, chances are you're doing that across your business. Mm -hmm. You know. And I, I want to, I, I want that to. To be the case, I want I want people to look at that mark and go whether they know it. You're not going to look at that mark and go, oh, I totally get what he was going after here. Right. You know, I get it. I'd be fucking amazed if you were, but I know it. There's a, and if you ask me about it, I'm going to tell you the story behind it, and you know, and and then you'll see like, oh shit, okay, nothing is arbitrary, right? And so, I, I, and to me, when nothing you should be arbitrary. When you see a logo. Does it like fire you up if you see a good one? So I see a good one. And then one. when you see a bad one, do you cringe? Oh my God. Yeah. That's totally. just inbred in you from design. If it doesn't side. work in black and white, I don't, I'm not on board. If you cannot, if that logo isn't just as powerful in black and white, I'm not on board. Really? But, that's your staple? But number one, that's the bar where it's set. And then I've got a bunch of other criteria right. too that I follow. Right. But yeah, if your logo can't be, because back in the day you do a fax, right? And mm -hmm. if your logo couldn't be reproduced in black and white, it just right. looks like a blob of shit. Right. That's just how you want your company dark to be. gray. Yeah. You couldn't read it. Is that how you want your company to be perceived? So it, it should work in black and white. Um, so, you know, and it came from print because not everyone had color or right. not everything was going to be reproduced in color. So it needed to work in black and white. These days you can get away with it a lot easier. But I'm also in the thing like, well, a brand should be able to, it's like a brand, like when you, when you brand a cow, mm -hmm. you know, I think of it in those terms, it's most simplistic form. So it can be branded on a cow, right? right? And, and using, be red. Using right. one piece of iron, mm -hmm. right? So I think about like, okay, when I, when I do a die cut sticker and I only have one color to work with, is it going to be just as powerful? And if it is, then great. I've, I've done it. You know, I, I created a logo for my buddy's gym and it was Corona Del Mar Fitness. So it was CDM Fitness. And I just took the, the letters, it was Futura Bold, and I put C and then the D right next to it, and then the M underneath. And when you look at it from afar, it looks like a little dude standing with his arms like, like he's flexing. Almost. Right. And then I just put like a circle up top for the head, and, it, and like everybody gets it right away. Like, oh, shit, like it's a little dude like flexing. Like, and it says what the company is. Immediately. Immediately. And I didn't do anything design-wise. I didn't create a new mark. I didn't. You just, I just put letters, letters in the right in place. In the right place. Yeah. Now, I didn't just think of that you know it took me a while to sure i was fucking around with it and like oh, what if i did this i was making marks and fonts was, could have screwed you up if he said to you i gotta have this font well, yeah cool. right it wouldn't have that, it, it might not have worked well that's right. a cat that's a 
different D that doesn't work or that M is too fluid. I need him to look like a man flexing, yeah, not like fonts a Fonts say yeah. things. Fonts have their own story, mm -hmm. you know? So I'm trying to find a font that doesn't have a story necessarily. Yeah. The story is what you make it, you know, as opposed to, you know, a font like <laughs> fucking like papyrus, you know? <laughs> yeah. Which uh, never, hates. Yeah, no, never gets used. No. So, uh, so when you see companies, right, because you're working with them, someone like when Gap made their change mm -hmm. from that logo and the whole world just blew up on them. I don't really quite remember that. When the, so, they went to the box. Yeah, uh, so they had the box, but then they went to like this circle with lines cut out through it like it was almost going through a paper shredder and like they just completely oh i don't remember that oh my god that's it not was... a brand i've really followed much but... right but it was it, neither do i and i only knew about it because the nightmare of my designer friends were like who okayed this yeah it would be like taking ibm and throwing its logo upside down yeah. Or taking Ford right. and removing the blue and putting in red, and now it kind of looks like a Chevy. It was just so weird. Yeah, and you kind—I kind of wonder, like, when it's you're a Chevy logo, not to cut you off. No, but Landor Communications. You know, if you look at they—they've got a book. I think it's called, I think it's called the Red Book or something red, and it's all the logos they've done over the years, like Levi's. Mm -hmm. and, but you look at these logos; all of them can be reproduced in black and white. Right without losing any legibility, without losing any power. They're all extremely strong logos. They're not, they don't date. That's another thing. Right. They don't show, you can't look at that logo and go, oh, that looks like it was developed in the 60s. Right. Or in the 30s or in the 80s. You know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. just, it's timeless. It's, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. So then when you're designing something for your client, are you trying to keep it timeless? or as do you Timeless as possible. Or do you, you know? try to like, Say, hey, guys, this is 2023. Yeah, we don't really do a lot Let's... of trendy shit. So when we're producing commercials or producing um, any type of video, we don't really, oh, well, this is the cool new transition that everybody's doing. or You know what I mean? Like right. sometimes you, you got to kind of play along a little bit sometimes. But we try not to do anything trendy or new fads or you remember like in like, on the website, like everybody was doing parallax, right. right? It was like, oh, this is the thing. Like, okay. But, but for how long is it the thing? How long is it the thing? Yeah. Turns out parallaxing just kept evolving and you know, but it's those like things that happen where it just, you can tell like, oh yeah, that was five years ago. That was a big deal. And now it's not anymore. And it dates you and it dates your work. So mm -hmm. we try to stay away from that stuff as much as possible. Uh, really just stick to the story at hand. And, uh, Do you find that a big challenge with clients who are kind of like, ah, sometimes, I really you know, like this? Oh, well, they'll say, hey, hey, check this out. This company's did this. We really like that. Can you do something like that? And my first argument is like, we can, but now you're just copying what your competitor is doing. So you'll look like a second rate. Yeah. yeah. How about let's come up with something new? I understand the direction. Like they went in the, why don't we, how about we go in this direction? you know, something new that hasn't been seen before right. and that you can claim as your own. And make your competitor look and go, God, why didn't we think of that? Yeah, ideally. Right. Sure. That's what you kind of hope. Yeah. Do you have any advice for young creatives coming up that you would, you know, part that wise wisdom to and say, listen, if you do X, Y, and Z, you're going to be in a good place. I don't think it's anything new. I, 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 there's nothing that I've learned that I could depart uh, impart on somebody that that's new, but it would just be, be flexible, right? Be able to take criticism, be flexible, 
be willing to learn, like show an eagerness to learn, bring something to the table, bring yourself to the table. The only thing you have different than everyone else is you. So don't bring the same tools someone else is going to bring. You know, don't try to mimic what someone else is doing because somebody else will always do it better. Okay. So the only thing that you have is that's unique is you. So capitalize on that. Find out what are those things that are unique to me that I that can help sharpen my tools so that I become indispensable because there is only one me, you know. So it would really be that really learn about yourself and what you have to offer in this world. I think a lot of people in the creative you know, like, well, I'm going to get that camera because <laughs> these guys got it. Right. I'm going to get these lenses. Uh, I'm going to edit in this software and I'm going to do my work, my camera work. It's obviously when you're starting out, you, have to, you need to emulate somebody. Mm -hmm. and, and, but I would say, like, emulate as many people as you can and then find out what really, you know, like in that exercise that I talked about where we listed everything out and found the common trait. Do that in yourself, right? Like, go look at what's being done out there and just try everything. And then find out, or here's what I really like. Here's what I really gravitate to. I have a design style. I didn't say this is my design style. It just kind of unfolded that way because of all the things that I like and the things that I dislike. And then all of a sudden I realized I kept gravitating towards this kind of one. Now, conversely, that's why I stopped being a designer because I just had this, this kind of one style that I kept gravitating towards. And while it's, it's decent and I'm happy with it, it's not necessarily, I can't, I can't drag it across all mediums. And I think as a designer, you should be pretty, um, you should be pretty diverse, right? Your right. design should be right. versatile. I think if in, in advertising anyway, oh, you should absolutely. be able to be versatile in design. If you just have one style, you know, that's kind of dangerous. So that's kind of why I pulled myself out of, of that. But the way I found that style is I tried a whole bunch of different styles and, you know, and so I, I think that would be my, my advice is, you know, be flexible, learn about yourself, bring you to the table. Right. And, uh, yeah. And give your best pitch. Be on time. <laughs> you know, don't be late. Well, I'm glad you were on time today and we got to sit down yeah, and, finally. And, <laughs> and, and, and do this. And I'm sure it's going to help some people out because, just hearing other people's past, what they did right and wrong, can shorten up their path. Sure. Yeah. No, I, I, listen, I watch documentaries all the time, and I'm always looking for that. Like, oh, how did he do that? <laughs> how, did she get, how did she get there from there? Right. How did they handle this traumatic ordeal that happened and, and, and come out singing on the other side? You know, one of those guys right now I'm looking at is like Elon Musk. I mean, dude, talk about a guy with highs and lows. Yes. Guy goes from, you know, billions to millions to almost nothing back up to billions. And like, and not just from a financial point of view, but he got ousted from his company and then started new, you know, I mean, it's just an amazing story. And right. the guy just, but he believes in himself. Mm -hmm. He knows what he has to offer from a unique standpoint that nobody else can, you know, and he banks on it right. constantly. And, and that, that's really like cool to see when somebody banks on themselves you know yeah if you if you really watch and look at his path it was all him he was he yeah. bet on him yes everybody yeah. else yeah. was like you fool yeah right he's like no i'm putting it all into i think he said he goes when i hear a no that means a maybe if i hear no again that just means not right now no. <laughs> And when I hear a no for the third time, that means just keep trying. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. never no. Right. Which, you know, I just, I, I don't, I think I kind of butchered that, but it's essentially that. And I just thought, 
Yeah, that's rad. Yeah. You know, that's cool. Thanks for your time, man. Yeah, this was awesome. Me, dude. This was great. It. Now now that you see how the podcasts work, you're going to yeah, get it all started up. I got my own deal. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm going to emulate you. You're the man. I appreciate it, Marcus. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. All right. Thank you for listening to the Just a Good Conversation podcast. Please click the like button if you enjoyed the episode. Become a subscriber to the show. And please leave a review if you enjoyed what you heard. And remember to follow the Just a Good Conversation podcast on Instagram. You can find all of the past shows on the website, justagoodconversation.com. Thank you for listening. This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to Just a Good Conversation. If I have any drone questions, I go to my man, Jay Seidel, a professor at Fullerton College where he runs the best drone program in the country. Just named the Association for Unmanned Vehicle Systems International's new chapter president. We talk about drones, the future, and what's happening now. Delivery of packages what Walmart's doing, Amazon, and Wing. Early on, it was like the Wild West. It was like, oh my gosh, you know, things were just popping up and these startup companies were getting some venture capital money and they were getting some investment. And they're like, hey, here's this drone, here's this, and we're going to do this. And this, we don't know what this is for, but we're going to sell this. And so that, that's gone away. And it's kind of, things have kind of weeded themselves out. I'm Matt Brown, host of Just a Good Conversation. Take a listen to our archives. My guests have ranged from Hall of Famers, comedians, and photographer Peter Reed Miller. I think the very first thing I shot was uh, an offshore powerboat race. Yeah, and this is great, but but they wouldn't let us go offshore. So basically, and it was out in Newport. It was out in Newport Harbor. So basically, you kind of put it out on the, this press boat and. Uh, he photographed the start, boom, they went by. Uh, probably an hour later, they came through, boom, they came through. And probably another hour later, they came through and finished. And, and the guy, um, Rocky Aoki, who owned the Benihana steak chain, won the race. And I have a picture of him on his boat going like this. And, and that was it. <laughs> it was kind of like, well, this is really it. But uh, but yeah, that was my first uh, my first job for us. Uh, Go to justagoodconversation.com for all our archives. Let's take a quick break from my sponsor before diving into my conversation with Jay Seidel.